morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. It's official. According to Punxsutawney Phil, the groundhog, we're in for six more weeks of winter. So how does a trip to sunny Florida sound? Our destination is a gold-plated treasure island with a gold-plated price tag to match. Morocco will be our guide. Palm Beach is the site of the Winter White House of America's first billionaire president. Achievement, lineage, or money, what confers status here? They would like to think it's culture and lineage, but it's money. People look at you, I know what that tie is worth, I know what that suit is worth, I know where you belong. And you're a great guy, but you don't belong among the billionaires, okay? Palm Beach, where the Gilded Age lives on ahead on Sunday morning. Oh, yes, I drove here myself. Our Sunday profile this Super Bowl Sunday is of halftime show headliner Lady Gaga. Lee Cowan does the honors. She's reinvented herself so many times, it's hard to know what to expect from Lady Gaga. I want to hold them like they do in Texas, please. And that's exactly the way she likes it. It seems like you're more lady now than Gaga, if that really? makes any sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? Today. <laughs> what about tomorrow? Lady Gaga's latest incarnation, ahead on Sunday morning. They say no two snowflakes are just alike, but plenty of pairs of people are. They're called identical twins. And with Aaron Moriarty this morning, we'll be meeting a select few. 25-year-old Sarah Heath grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, as an only child. At least that's what she thought she was. Until two and a half years ago when she met Selena Kapinski, her identical twin sister. Does it feel a little surreal? Absolutely. <laughs> Still. Ahead on Sunday morning, the extraordinary stories of twins separated at birth and what scientists can learn from their unlikely reunions. Action is fast and furious at the athletic competition Luke Burbank will take us to this morning. And no, we're not talking about the Super Bowl. PJ Ball is just your average, everyday 11-year-old. Or With one exception. Okay, let's have a race. Okay. Can't believe I just said that to you. Okay, uh, I'll let you do it twice. This is not even going to be close, is I, it? I know. Yeah, it's not going to be. He's a world-class athlete in a sport you probably haven't heard of. Let's go! It's called sport stacking, and will take you to its Super Bowl ahead on Sunday morning. Armin Katayan talks about mind games with football great Steve Young. Steve Hartman has found a real winner among today's Super Bowl contenders. Christine Johnson puts her best foot forward at a legendary cowboy boot workshop and more. Next, the good life. Holy cow, look at that ceiling. Make that really good life of Palm Beach. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The scene at last night's American Red Cross Ball at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida, attended by President Trump and the First Lady. Palm Beach was America's treasure island long before Mr. Trump arrived as Mo Rocco will show us in our Sunday morning cover story. The first thing you should know about Palm Beach is that it's an island unto itself. It was separate from the rest of Florida. It was separate to the rest of America. It was the most exclusive town in America. Writer Lawrence Lamer has lived here for over 20 years. He calls Palm Beach America's first gated community. Achievement, lineage, or money, what confers status here? They would like to think it's culture and lineage, but it's money. It's all about money. Your friendships are defined by money. Your, your people look at you, I know what that tie is worth, I know what that suit is worth, I know where you belong. And you're a great guy, but you don't belong among the billionaires, okay? 
Today, Worth Avenue is one of the most glamorous stretches of shopping in America. 110 years ago, Worth Avenue was Jungle Trail and the site of an alligator farm. And yes, I know, I should have worn nicer shoes. It was Henry Morrison Flagler who transformed Palm Beach. Flagler, the co-founder of Standard Oil, came to this tropical wilderness in the 1890s and envisioned a paradise for the very wealthy. At a time when many of his peers would have been thinking about retirement, he's embarking on an enormous project. Tracy Kammerer is chief curator of the Whitehall Flagler Museum. The Hotel Royal Poinciana was his first hotel property on the island, largest wooden structure in the world, and it also had the distinction of being the world's largest hotel, ultimately accommodating 1,500 guests. So he traveled in style. Vanderbilt's Rockefellers and Carnegie's arrived, most like Flagler in their own private rail cars, along the railroad which Flagler himself built, opening Florida to tourism. He also built the famed Breakers Hotel, and then his own spectacular estate, Whitehall. Call it Beaux-Arts in the Jungle. He wanted to get this house built quickly so that he and his new wife could enjoy. The mansion, says docent Lisa Jensen, was Flagler's wedding gift to his much younger third wife. She liked to throw parties, she liked to play the piano and sing, and so she really brought some sunshine into his later years. So what were their ages when they got married? 71 and 34. That's sort of a Palm Beach tradition. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, <laughs> I'd have to agree with you on that. It is. You could say that Flagler's home and the two hotels really were the beginning of society in Palm Beach. A society that soon needed fabulous homes to match its fabulous wealth. Enter architect Addison Meisner. Sometimes when you're in Palm Beach, you forget that you're not in Italy. That's right. You forget you're not in Italy or Europe or Spain. Meisner, says preservation consultant Jane Day, created the Mediterranean Revival look, a mashup of European styles that became the architecture of choice for the Palm Beach elite. It was a very romantic style. He'll try and mix and match things from different places around the Mediterranean. He wanted it to look as if it had been in the family for generations, so that it didn't look like it was all done in 1919, for example. Villa Meisner, as the name would suggest, was the home of Meisner himself. Holy cow, look at that ceiling. Today, this is home to the family of Dee and Nick Adams, a direct descendant of President John Adams, and their pet pig, Mona Lisa. His idea was to bring the light in, bring the air in, make the, make the, the windows bigger, but retain that gothic feel. These panels in the dining room are said to have originally lined Spanish Queen Isabella's 15th century palace. The tiles over there are 16th century Portuguese tiles, and then others are made other to look that way. Exactly. Can you guess what Addison Meisner might think of Palm Beach today? I think he would, he would say it was very much like he had envisioned it, at least this area here, because he, he himself was an eccentric. He had a monkey named Johnny Brown that ran around these very premises. And we see it in your stained glass windows. Yes. Another Meisner landmark, La Querida, was home to the Kennedy family. President John F. Kennedy worked on his inaugural address here in what he called his Winter White House. Which brings us to Mar-a-Lago, now the Winter White House of President Donald Trump. Walking through this room in 1927, what would it look like? Very much as it appears now. Built by post-serial fortune heiress Marjorie Merriweather Post and her husband E.F. Hutton, Mar-a-Lago is dazzling even by Palm Beach standards. There's five clay tennis courts at the back as well. Olympia Devine has written the Trump-authorized history of the estate. There is an inscription I see in many places. Plus ultra, plus ultra which means beyond the ultimate. And, and that is symbolic of how Mrs. Post led her life and what her expectation was for this property. Mrs. Post bequeathed Mar-a-Lago, which means sea to lake, to the federal government to be used as a presidential retreat after her death in 1973. 
But then-President Richard Nixon preferred Key Biscayne. And so the costly white elephant was returned to the Post family, who couldn't find a buyer, until a certain real estate developer came along. You're not going to do anything? No. No personal Trump touches here? No. Believe it or not, no. If Palm Beach was America's first gated community, says Lawrence Lamer, then Donald Trump was perhaps its most brazen gate crasher. They despised him from day one, did everything to try to stop his arrival in this town. And he didn't care. He, and he's, he was going to do what he was going to do. Mr. Trump bought Mar-a-Lago and turned it into a social club. But unlike Palm Beach's other infamously exclusionary clubs, Mar-a-Lago accepted Gentiles and Jews, as well as African-Americans and openly gay members, as long as they could pay. What do you think motivated Donald Trump to do this? Money. But he did it. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't do it. Would they want to start a largely Jewish club in Palm Beach? Would they do that? Would you do that if you cared about social acceptance? Would you do that if you cared about the, the WASP elite on the island? You would never do that. Along the way, Mr. Trump has picked plenty of fights over everything from the height of the flagpole on his club's lawn to the flight path over Mar-a-Lago that he wanted changed. Excuse me, I did interrupt for a moment. There's a plane that's going right Getting over. elected president solved that pesky problem. Are you surprised that this is now the Winter White House? Well, it's amazing. You know, it's, I wouldn't have dreamed it. But of course, I don't think anyone would have thought that would happen. It, that he would become president. Yes, and it shows in America anything can happen. And it's a great thing. You know, it's, it's really fantastic. Bernd Lemke is the longtime managing director of Mar-a-Lago. He says Mr. Trump is continuing Mrs. Post's great tradition of hosting with one significant difference. Mr. Trump, when he took over and made it a club, he did the same thing. He invited his friends, but for an initiation fee. So it's still a home for friends, but right. friends that pay an initiation right. fee. Right. Yes. And this way it helps with the cost, you know. i got to try that with my own friends. I see. For at least the last few years, members of Mar-a-Lago have paid $14,000 a year in dues and a $100,000 initiation fee. But when we visited in January, Lemke told us this. We get a lot of requests for membership. We moved the membership fee up to $200,000, non-refundable. The doubling of the initiation fee, effective January 1st, has been confirmed, prompting some to question whether Mr. Trump is profiting from his election. The club claims the fee had been $200,000 back before the last recession. Does attendance here tend to spike when Mr. Trump is here? Phenomenally. Um, you know, instead of five people for lunch, we may have 150 people. It's incredible. It seems that the relationship between Donald Trump and Palm Beach has changed. Before the election, nobody in this island would say a good word about him. Now suddenly everybody in the island has voted for him. Brothers Comedy Hour, show number one, take one. Coming up, a brother's act. It's the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Brothers Comedy Hour, show number one, take one. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. February 5th, 1967, 50 years ago today. The day the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour debuted here on CBS. Hosted by comic folk singers Tom and Dick Smothers, the show was a product of its turbulent times. Hot-button issues such as the Vietnam War and the draft loomed large in show sketches and songs. Now Ho Chi Minh sure ain't no friend that's playing for all to see. And I know someone's got a fight over there, but why does it have to be me? But the brothers quickly learned cutting-edge comedy can cut both ways. They constantly battled CBS censors and occasionally even made fun of those battles on the air. <laughs> Nothing funny in this. Here you are, boys, we're through censoring your show. President Johnson reputedly complained to the network about the show. A Richard Billhouse Nixon do solemnly swear. When President Nixon took office in 1969, 
the brothers announced a mock ceasefire. And for the start of his term, we are going to give our President Nixon our full support right. and lay off the jokes entirely. That's right. He's going to be in office for at least four years, and I'm sure we'll be able to get around to him a little bit hey, later. Wait. <laughs> a few months later, CBS canceled the show, charging the brothers with breach of contract. The brothers sued and won their case and went on to eventually have the last laugh. In 1988, they hosted a Smothers Brothers reunion special, right here on CBS. Ahead. This particular boot is made out of bullfrog. Try these on for size. Now a little advice for anyone who hopes to be stepping out in custom-made cowboy boots like these. Time is running out. Christine Johnson takes us to meet one of the last of a vanishing breed. On a quiet road next to the railroad tracks in the great state of Texas sits the Wheeler Boot Company. You know, one false move and into the trash it goes and you cut another one. Owner Dave Wheeler has been making custom boots for over 50 years. I always say that you're only good as your last pair you made. It's safe to say Wheeler has been on a roll in that regard. He's built quite the reputation around these parts and beyond. Like I see a little spot here that needs to go up and a little spot here. So then I'll take the hammer and I'll touch it up in those spots. And that really makes a difference? It makes a difference because not only for the boot, but for me, because the next step then is to trim the sole over here. And you want that line to be as straight as possible. From the first measurement to the final product, the process can take hundreds of hours, with Wheeler and his longtime bootmaker, Jorge Amaro, paying attention to every detail. And believe it or not, so that's it's, it? No, no, no. Oh. That's, that's just the glue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not just what he makes, it's how he makes it. The machines are the same his dad used, and where Wheeler learned the tricks of the trade. When I first started sewing on these, I would fight with it, and my dad always would say, just let the machine have it. Let the machine have it. Okay, so. Wheeler's rustic and simple workshop is in stark contrast to the high-end leathers his customers demand. They call this the classic look now. The skins range from cowhide to the exotic. There's alligator, elephant, kangaroo, and ostrich. Is this a brown? Yeah, no, that's a super dark brown. That's yeah. the classic. You won't believe what he used for client Glenn Lilly's uh, boots. This particular boot is made out of bullfrog. Prices start at $2,500. The most expensive costs 25000 While the boots are made to order, they all share one thing in common. Every bootmaker's signature is right here. This is the tongue that goes on to the front of the boot. So this is your signature? That's our signature. If you're the person who comes in, has always wanted a pair of boots, I just wanted these boots, I don't care about anything else, I want one pair of boots. Uh -uh. Now I know how the addicted people feel because you'll be back again and again. Warren Avery had Wheeler fashion him boots that are a roadmap to every Super Bowl game he's been to with the leather tips sent straight from the Wilson factory where tonight's game balls were made. So this is a size what again? 26 and a half. It's the biggest we've ever made. Wheeler's built boots for the tallest man in the world, for Dick Cheney, and Robert Duvall. No matter the client, the same rules apply. There's a two-year waiting list. No exceptions, even for Arnold Schwarzenegger. He finds a pair of boots that he loves in one of the books. It's a floral design, a lot of leaves and stems with a with a yellow rose in the middle. I want this boot with the California poppy. I tell him now, the problem is we have a two-and-a-half-year backlog, so you cannot be in a hurry. So it's January. So he says, my birthday is in July. And I said, that's nice. Mine's in August. Schwarzenegger finally got his boots, 
just a few weeks ago. He's also one of the last select customers Wheeler will build a custom boot for. He plans on retiring in three years, and he's not taking any new orders. The last 50 to 100 pair that we make are going to be some of our best boots. And that's like, you know, going out by winning the Super Bowl. You retire. Is that a dying art? It's a dying art. It's true. One day there will be no boot makers. There will be no boot makers. And I don't know but who your that... boots will still be around? They'll still be around. For now, you can find this Texan in his shop, taking his time, getting it right. Still to come, Lady Gaga. But first... They're here. When twin meets twin. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. For researchers, there is much to be learned from twins who are as just alike as genetics will allow. This morning, we have a different sort of story about twins told to us by Erin Moriarty of 48 Hours, who, it should be noted, is a twin herself. Here she is with her sister, Sheila. <laughs> On a recent afternoon at London's Heathrow Airport... Are you nervous at all? Maybe. 11-year-old Evie Hanlon-Moores stood impatiently alongside her mother. Just waiting. She was waiting for someone she hadn't seen for nearly a year. They're here. Despite the long separation, she had no trouble recognizing her. You look more alike now than you did when we saw you in October. As you might have guessed, Evie Hanlon-Moores and Eva Chia are identical twins, but they live 10,000 miles apart. Isn't this a very strange situation to explain to anyone? Yeah, yeah. I guess. It became our normal, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Yeah. A new kind of blended family. Hmm. Hmm. This unusual family saga began more than 10 years ago in Brisbane, Australia. Dee Cridlin had just brought her newly adopted daughter, Eva, home from China when she saw what she thought were pictures of her child posted by another mother on a website for adoptive parents. How much did the picture that Joe put online look like your daughter? Well, I thought it was my daughter. Dee immediately wrote the other mother, who lived near Bath, England. I opened my email, read the email from Dee, and just thought, oh. <laughs> Joe Hanlon Moores had adopted her child, Evie, three months earlier. I just burst into tears because it's exactly the same face. What both mothers suspected, a DNA test later confirmed. Can we please have the fact that their parents gave the girls similar names is just an odd coincidence. <laughs> Evie and Eva are among more than 100,000 babies, mostly girls, abandoned since the late 1970s when China instituted its one-child-per-family policy. With orphanages full, International adoptions were allowed in the early 1990s, but when demand for healthy Chinese babies outweighed the supply, siblings were separated. China has never had an official policy on the adoption of twins. Do you think there are a large number of these twins that have been separated at birth who don't know that each other exists? If twins occur in approximately one in 80 births naturally, then you have to figure if, if hundreds of thousands of girls have been abandoned, there's a fair number out there. As many as 1,500 sets of twins, both fraternal and identical by some estimates. I think this is Joanne, and I think this is Elizabeth. And you would be wrong. Nancy Siegel is a professor at Cal State Fullerton and director of the Twin Studies Center. While the forced separation of all those twins is certainly heartbreaking, 
For Siegel, there is a silver lining. It does give me an opportunity to track development in a very, very unique way. Such a large pool of twins, raised apart, offers researchers a rare chance to answer an age-old question. How much of who we are comes from nature? How much from nurture? Studying twins tells us about all of us. We can really hone in on the extent to which genes and environments play a role in different behaviors. 25-year-old Sarah Heath, adopted from China in 1992, grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. She was a freshman at Georgetown when a classmate called her by the wrong name. This guy came up to me and thought I was someone else. But he did really recognize her. It just wasn't Sarah. Um, it was someone that I'd gone to high school with. He sent a picture of Sarah to Selena Kapinski, a girl he had grown up with in New York City, who was now going to college in Ohio. Did you think that the girl in that picture looked like you? If I didn't know I didn't like own those clothes, like I would think that was me. Because of several misconnections on social media, it took nearly four years before Selena and Sarah finally agreed to meet for a rather awkward dinner. We kind of always joke how our relationship comes off like a weird, like blind date. Normally when you meet someone for dinner, if you don't know them, you know, you probably tell them like what you're wearing or something. But in this case, it was sort of like, well, look for the person that looks like you. <laughs> the probability of twin is 99.99%. Yes. yes. A DNA test confirmed they are identical. I think this one's interesting. Okay. And they recently became the 18th set of twins adopted from China to enter into Siegel's twin study. As you're looking at each other, I'm curious, are you looking for the similarities or do you see the differences? I think there's a little bit of both. You know, you feel self-conscious. You're like, wait, is that what I look like when I eat pasta? Like, do I laugh like that? Do I drink water like that? Their ice cream's actually really good. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And it is kind of like looking in a mirror. Except there is no mirror. <laughs> After two years, they're still getting to know each other, although some similarities are already apparent. Your favorite food? <laughs> we both just really like food in general. Yeah. <laughs> and as you can see for yourself, they share a similar fashion sense. Does it feel a little surreal? Absolutely. Still. Like this one is at our birthday, maybe? 17-year-old so, Lily McLeod lives four hours away from her identical twin sister, Jillian Shaw. I'm, like, thankful for, like, even the little visits. But neither girl remembers a time when they didn't know they were sisters. <laughs> I don't think we look alike. I don't think we look that much alike. Do you think we look alike? You definitely look like twins. Jillian is growing up in Windsor, Canada with an older brother and sister. I'm left-handed writing. I'm right-handed. Well, I'm, we're mirror image twins. Yeah, I part my hair this way. She parts it that way. Lily, an only child, lives outside Toronto. For 16 years, the families have taken turns making the long drive between their homes. Hi. <laughs> Lily's parents, Kirk and Allison, and Jillian's parents, Mike and Lynette, met in China in 2000 when they were adopting the girls. They noticed the babies looked so much alike that they ordered DNA tests when they got back to Canada. How would you describe what you got along with a baby? Well, we always say we uh, got a baby and we also got an extended family because they are like family for us. Jillian, did you see what Aunt Allison has in her fruit bowl? Your pomegranate. Both couples believe the orphanage suspected the girls were twins and did what they could. This orphanage put these little girls together knowing that both these girls were going to the same group in Ontario. You don't think that was by coincidence? They, they hope we discover. Remember I used to love this? Yeah, you can have it. Do you think they have a true special bond that's unusual? Lily would say that having Jillian in her life is probably the most important relationship she has. 
That brings us back to Eva's mom from Australia, Dee Cridlin. She understood just how important that sibling relationship is and was so troubled when she first learned of her daughter's separation from her sister that she considered giving up Eva so she could grow up with Evie in England. Because I had already three sons, mm. we talked about. <laughs> Why does that make you so emotional? Um, because at the time I would have done just the right thing by a child to let her uh, live with her sibling, but now I couldn't imagine living without and this is Eva. Instead, Dee and Joe made a promise to keep the girls in contact. They met for the first time at three and a half years old. Uh, this is the main road. And when we met them... Oh, the two different ones. It was just the fourth time that the girls had been together. And yet, there's no question in Eva's mind about just how similar they are. <laughs> You're exactly like Evie. Well, duh. We're basically the same person. What we find with twins raised apart is they are as alike in personality as twins raised together. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but what it means is that the similarity among people living together is due to shared genes, not shared environments. And Siegel says twins raised apart may only become more alike in time. It's because they have the chance to gravitate toward environments and experiences apart from what their parents want. On our birthdays. But for right now, these parents are offering the right kind of nurture to allow nature to take its course. I have always thought that nature was the stronger of nature and nurture, but I had no idea until I saw them. Mm. The things like the laugh and the yes. run, the mannerisms and the words they choose. It's unbelievable, the things you inherit. It made me rethink everybody. If we told you that you're looking at the makings of a fast and furious sport, you wouldn't believe us, right? Neither did Luke Burbank. You do, like, do Pokemon or any of that kind of stuff? P.J. Ball is a gifted athlete. He's just 11 years old, but his talent hasn't gone unnoticed. He's been interviewed on national TV. His Instagram page is a hit. And he's got more hardware to dangle around his neck than Mr. T. But you won't find P.J. on the football field or the baseball diamond. You'll find him right here, standing behind a table and a stack of cups. A stack he can put up and take down with such alarming speed that we feel the need to assure you this clip yep. has not been sped up. Welcome to the world of sports stacking. The goal is to stack the cups in specific formations and take them down as fast as humanly possible without knocking them over. Yeah! Okay, so uh, can I start with either side? Does it doesn't matter where I start. I have to make the three pyramids and break the three pyramids down. Yeah, but you, you actually can't touch two stacks at the same time oh. and you can't start in the middle. Okay, okay. Okay, got it. So three, just, yeah. two, one, go. We heard about it on YouTube. So Natasha Ball is PJ's mom. So PJ watched it on YouTube, he said, I want to try these. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. You asked your parents for some cups? Yeah, and I, I got it for Christmas. Were you using some other kind of stuff before you got the official stuff? Um, yeah, I was using just like the little bathroom spit cups and they worked horrible. And then what was it like when you got the real cups? It was amazing. I was like, wow. <laughs> I, I didn't know that cups could actually work, work this good. The sport started at a California Boys and Girls Club back in 1981, where kids were stacking Dixie cups for fun. Within a decade, though, the sport had formalized, spreading to schools in 37 states. It was even featured on The Tonight Show in 1990. Okay. You're doing that really fast. <laughs> Come <laughs> on. 
Today, more than 8 million kids participate in sports stacking all over the country. By the end of the lesson, you're Phys ed teachers love it because it's that rare sport that anyone can play. Ready, set, go. Even those who may not be as athletically inclined. Well, this is um, RRV. For PJ and his family, the sport has been life-changing. In fact, sport stacking has sort of become a family business. Yeah, we have the RV, we go into schools, we go into churches, we go into community groups. This is a pretty big change in your life as a family. PJ's parents sold their house in Florida and now travel the country teaching the sport, while PJ competes in various tournaments. Some of the same tournaments Jordan Green of Highlands Ranch, Colorado is training for. I think it was like 2012 nationals and they all of a sudden started giving awards to girls and I started like getting awards. So I was like, wow, I can do this. And she has. In fact, she got so good at stacking that she quit playing soccer, baseball and football to pursue this sport full time. Now she's the fastest female stacker in Colorado. And it's not just about the trophies. Studies have shown that it helps with like math, reading, science, like all your like almost focus in school. So that has helped me a lot, like be able to get better grades because I can focus and do well and understand a little bit more. You want to be a sign language interpreter? Yeah, I really like that idea <laughs> because it's um, I get to use my hands still and you move my fingers. So like most sports stackers, Jordan and PJ keep track of their competitors and their teammates via YouTube and social media. But it's when they all converge in one place that the cups really start to fly. The Junior Olympics in Houston, yes, this is a Junior Olympic sport, was a chance for sports stackers of every age and size from around the world to see just how fast they could go. Are you going to be okay if you guys don't manage to win? Um, yeah. Um, like. We, we just know that we tried our best, and that's pretty much all that matters. Okay, good luck out there. And it gave them a chance to prove to any doubters out there that stacking isn't just a quirky hobby, but a real sport, one that belongs in the same sentence as soccer or swimming. I've heard of some people that they've gotten bullied for it just because they'll say like, oh, that's not a sport or that's really dumb. But my friends have been super supportive. They all are like, wow, that's so cool. When's your next tournament or how'd you do? In Houston, both PJ and Jordan won more medals to add to their collections, with Jordan setting a massive personal best along the way. In just a couple of years, Jordan will be off to college, but that doesn't mean an end to her stacking interests. How long do you think you're going to do this? Um, probably forever. There's a saying that's like in the community, once a stacker, always a stacker. Meanwhile, PJ sees a possible expiration date on his stacking career. Do you think you're going to keep doing this for a long time? Um, probably until I'm about maybe 16 or, or 17, and then I'll probably be into college and I'll have some other stuff like, an, like a job or maybe a wife or something. So. Yeah, I'm married and wives really cut into cup stacking time. <laughs>I think it was after the interview we did, and I saw the reaction. Good morning. A story for the books is next. On this Super Bowl Sunday, Steve Hartman has the story of a real winner. Ladies and gentlemen, your New England Patriots. Generally speaking, Super Bowl pregame interviews aren't a great source of stimulating conversation. And yet every year, reporters gather 12 deep for this cliché fest. Saying it's good when you come together as a team. Fortunately, this year, there was a rookie from New England with something novel to talk about. Good to see you again. Novels, like Gone Girl. What about her false diary? Yeah. How does the author use that in the narrative? Well, it's, the diary is almost a different character in the book. I first met this voracious reader wide receiver three years ago. Malcolm Mitchell was in college then, playing for Georgia, when one day he ran into a woman at Barnes & Noble. She didn't know he was a famous football player and invited him to join her book club, which he did. And that's how one of the top wide receivers in the country began meeting monthly with his book club lady friends. Oh, yeah. And then he went to the wedding. I love that. I love that part. 
<laughs> he was the only man and the youngest by a generation. But Malcolm didn't care, didn't care what anyone thought. Somebody called me a nerd. It's not a word that I'm used to hearing. Is it okay though? Are you okay with the label? I was proud of it. Great. It's like a badge of honor to me, knowing where I came from. Malcolm confessed to me that when he started college, he could only read at about a junior high level, and it bothered him. So he started putting as much effort into his reading game as his football game. Every free moment he had a book in his hand, until eventually he was reading them by the dozens. Yeah, the, the ending was great. And that's why, no matter what he does tonight, Malcolm says football will never be his proudest accomplishment. That came natural. That's a gift. I had to work to read. Which brings us to the latest chapter in his life story. After the interview we did, and I saw the reaction. You know, it kind of took, up a, took on a life of its own. Good morning. Today, the reader is a writer, too. So I wrote the book that you have in your hands today, The Magician's Hat. The Magician's Hat is a children's book about the magic of reading. Follow your dreams. He has also started a kids' literacy foundation, all of which leads me to the same conclusion I had after my first meeting with Malcolm. If we could all just follow your example, our country would be in a perfectly good place. You don't know how much that means to me, man. Malcolm Mitchell. Seriously. Super Bowl winner. But, you know, I don't, I don't know that you can put a label on growth. You know, I'm just me. A pre-halftime visit with like, Lady oh, Gaga, just ahead. I belong in a way. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. Lady Gaga won a Grammy for her song, Bad Romance. Fast forward to tonight's Super Bowl halftime show, where no doubt she'll once again make the occasion uniquely hers. Lee Cowan has our Sunday profile. I used to come here probably four times a week to uh, John's memorial. Four times a week? Yeah. I was so inspired. On a warm day last fall in New York Central Park, Lady Gaga came to pay her respects to John Lennon. Berry fields forever. It was an unannounced visit, and yet it became an event. Everything around Lady Gaga becomes an event. But by Gaga standards, it was all pretty tame. Love is all you need. Seems like you're more lady now than Gaga, if that really? makes any sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? Today. <laughs> what about tomorrow? was a time when the one thing you could count on from the theatrical pop diva was outrageousness. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas, After all, she put meat dress in the fashion dictionary. She wasn't style over substance, though. Her six Grammys are proof of that. It was just part of the package. Here we go! But her latest solo album, her fifth, called Joanne, was a toned-down diva. I think that when people see me with less makeup on and less uh, of what I was doing before... There's a sense you've evolved into something right. else. Right. Oh, it's less now. or it's. But, you know, I don't, I don't know that you can put a label on growth. You know, I'm just me. I'm just growing up. I'm 30, you know? It's just what I want to do now. Take my the title track, Joanne, written with producer Mark Ronson, is about her father's sister, Joanne Germanata, who died of lupus at age 19, before Gaga was born. Gaga's middle name is Joanne, and it's also the name of her parents' Italian restaurant on New York's Upper West Side, where we met. Playing the music for my father for the first time was very powerful, and my grandma, too. How'd they react? It was interesting. My father was very, very emotional. And my, my grandmother was too, but she held my hand and she said, 
I hope, my dear, that you won't be too maudlin while you're putting this music into the world. And what I think she meant by maudlin, it's such an old word, is she didn't want me to have an obsession with the death of my aunt. And if you say something that you might even mean, she calls Joanne her most honest record yet. Including a song called Million Reasons about the heartache of relationships. Gaga's own engagement to actor Taylor Kinney ended last year after five years together. I think women love very hard. We love men, we just love with everything we have. And sometimes I don't know that that love is met with um, the type of dignity that we wish it would be met with. You know, we're not trying to make you less of a man. We just want you to love us the, as deeply and as wholesomely and as fully as we love you. When you were promoting your last album, you wore the world's first flying dress. <laughs> this... I have to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and this time, uh, it's dive bars, is how you're sort of releasing it. Can't wait to get you There's just something so fantastic and wonderful and humbling about being in a dive bar where I started making music and being able to sing this music. Up close and personal to the fans, looking them in the eye for the first time when they hear it. It reminds me that if this were all to go away tomorrow, all the big success, that I would still be very happy going from bar to bar, playing music for people. Did you really? Yes. The reason that I'm here at all is because of my relationship with my family and their encouragement of me to be a musician and to work hard. So as long as I stay there in that space, I can do anything. That's my truth. Staying in that space wasn't always easy. Her debut album, The Fame, was a huge hit. But Gaga had trouble washing off the persona she'd created, even for her own parents. I used to come home and I think my mom used to watch me have a real hard time washing it off, you know? I'd keep the wigs on and keep the makeup on and keep the outfits on and I was always Trying to, I never wanted to let my fans down. I always wanted them to see me in my art form. The only place Lady Gaga could be Stephanie Germanata is behind the closed doors of her own home. I'm very acutely aware that once I cross that property line, I'm not free anymore. As soon as I go out into the world, I belong in a way to everyone else. It's legal to follow me. It's legal to stalk me at the beach. I can't call the police or ask them to leave. And I took a long, hard look at that property line and I said, well, you know, if I can't be free out there, I'm going to be free in here. And that's what this album is? Getting to do whatever you want to do? Yes, sir. And not what people are in expecting or imposing on you to do. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Is it emotional because you feel just that weight on you all the time? That fame is just... I miss, I miss people. <laughs> sorry. Here you go. I miss people. Just having normal conversations with people? Yeah, I miss people. I miss, you know, going anywhere and meeting a random person and saying hi and having a conversation about life. I love people. The one barrier fame didn't put up was between her and her family, especially her father, Joe. Making your dad happy is, is especially for an Italian Catholic girl, I'll tell you. <laughs> it feels really good. And I, I feel that today, you know, all the awards in the world, you can get into all the nightclubs, they'll send you the nicest clothes. Nothing better than walking into your dad's restaurant and seeing a smile on his face and knowing that your mom and dad and your sister are real proud of you and that you, know, you haven't lost touch with who you are. That for me is real success. 
tonight, that success will take her to Houston and a Super Bowl halftime show, where she'll have more eyes and ears at one time than ever before. It's just such a huge stage. Oh, yeah. I've been thinking about it since I was a little girl. Have you really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just know that I can put a fantastic show together that will speak to football fans as well as my fans. Have a good day, sir. Fans, she still makes time for, whether in a football stadium or a walk in the park. See, all you need is love, right? As she left, she saw a man with a bike and hopped on. Only Lady Gaga would make an exit, side saddle in a pink dress and heels, and somehow make it seem normal. You gotta love New York. <laughs> Next, visit Mexico without even leaving home. On this biggest of all days for all American sports, some perspective now from our Melody Hobson. Later today, more than 100 million Americans will come together to watch the Super Bowl. Many will host or attend parties, gather around big TVs, overeat and drink, all while critiquing commercials. Some might say this scene is American as mom and apple pie. Or is it? Like the Super Bowl's viewership, 160 million people in more than 170 countries, the typical Super Bowl fet has gone global. Look closely and you'll notice many of the mainstays of your party come from beyond our borders. Let's start with the focal point. The TV. An estimated 90% of TVs sold in the U.S. actually come from Mexico. Not to mention, nearly every television component is now made in Asia, and this is not a new phenomenon. Cheaper production costs drove TV manufacturing overseas in the 1970s, well before NAFTA, and it hasn't slowed down since. This shift in production has been accompanied by a huge price reduction. In 1975, when 24 inches was considered a big screen, a color TV would have cost the equivalent of nearly $1,500. These days, you could buy that same set for as little as $150. Sure, technology and automation have driven down costs, but the real savings relate to labor. The living wage for a single person in Mexico is currently around 5,250 pesos, or about $250 a month. When compared to nearly $1,800 across the border here in the United States, it becomes clear that even if we wanted to make those same TVs in the U.S., we could not compete on price. The cost of living and therefore manufacturing in emerging economies is just much cheaper than it is in developed nations. How about your jersey? Players' jerseys are made in the U.S., while fans' jerseys are produced elsewhere. That guacamole? It probably crossed a border, too, since nearly a third of all avocados and seven out of every 10 tomatoes are grown in Mexico. All of this begs the question, could your Super Bowl party be, quote, made in the USA? The answer is yes, but at a cost. Recent suggestions that higher tariffs would spur U.S. manufacturing do not address the wage gap. By and large, Americans benefit greatly from global trade, since global competition often makes products cheaper and better. So, as you get ready for tonight's showdown, keep in mind that your Super Bowl party is in many ways a global affair. Ahead, Steve Young. His fight off the field. You had a voice in your head before the games. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a loud one. For one famous football player of the recent past, to prevail in games on the field, he first had to prevail in some mind games in his own head. Armin Katayan paid him a visit. Watch him hang out with his family in the backyard. And you get glimpses of the athletic grace and swagger that lifted Steve Young into Pro Football's Hall of Fame. Football is a unique sport. There is no statistic, no touchdown or passing yard that is accomplished by a single person. In 15 seasons in the NFL, Young redefined the position of quarterback as a double-edged sword, carving up teams with his arm 
and lengths. You had a voice in your head before the games. (laughs) A loud one. A loud one. But what teammates and fans never saw was the battle Young fought just to get himself on the field, now revealed in a new memoir. At its worst, Steve, how did it make you feel? You wake up and you see the crack of the morning dawn, and you're like, oh. And you'd have this dread, like, oh, not another, not another one. From the very beginning, Young kept his anxiety secret. At Greenwich High in Connecticut, he was a straight-A student, captain of the football, baseball, and basketball teams. A devout Mormon, the great-great-great-grandson, no less, of Brigham Young, the pioneering leader who brought the faith to Utah. At Brigham Young University, Young rose from eighth-string quarterback to All-American. In the pros, he earned the nickname Crash for his kamikaze style of play. In trouble, he's going to be sacked. No, gets away. A quarterback who refused to go down easy, as he showed in this run in 1988 that announced his arrival in San Francisco. To the 20, the 15, the 10, he dies. At its root is this desperation. I got to make something happen. So why not run out of bounds? Well, because I can't run out of bounds. Not an option. Stuff's got to happen. Welcome, Steve. Young actually began his pro career in 1984 in the short-lived United States Football League. Steve Young broke another record, signing what's reported to be the richest contract in sports history. Where he quickly earned another nickname before he stepped on the field for the LA Express. You come in as the $40 million man. You're tormented by it. Brutal. The idea that I had to carry this horrific, in my mind, weight. Steve doing a great job eluding the pressure. Of being highly paid and expectations that come with that. It was just felt too much. Great individual effort by Steve Young. The expectations were just beginning. When the USFL folded two years later, Young headed to Tampa Bay and then the 49ers in a storied rivalry with four-time Super Bowl champ Joe Montana, a saint in San Francisco. That only added to the voices roaring inside Young's head. How many of your teammates knew the extent of your anxiety? One. This guy's the man. He's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. What does he have to be anxious over or fearful of? Brent Jones, who played 11 seasons as a tight end with the 49ers, became Young's best friend, confidant, and pregame shrink. We spent 10 years of our life in room 9043 at the Marriott. That would be this Marriott in the shadow of Candlestick Park, the 49ers' home field during Young's entire career. Every player had his own room. Everyone except Steve and Brent. So, Steve, room 9043. (laughs) The thing that used to drive me most crazy, Armin, was he never, ever wanted to watch football. And I'm like, that's the last thing I could, I get me a movie, get me something to take my mind off of it. And the guy would just turn the football off and put on a movie. City uh, Slickers. City Slickers. He's behind me, isn't he? Time to turn in. Good night. I knew every line, every word. I'm like, dude, are we seriously going to watch City Slickers again? He'd go, yep, yep. Then they'd go over game plans, marriage plans, anything and everything just to get Young ready to play. Lots of second guessing, lots of talking, lots of going over things. It's funny because I think a lot of guys on our team thought that I was his roommate so I could get in his ear about throwing me more passes. Young eventually saw a therapist who diagnosed a fiendish form of separation anxiety turned pre-performance anxiety, buried in the roots of his family tree. As a kid, I was fearless during the day. But at nighttime, I needed to be home. People would say, hey, sleep over at Eddie's house. No, I don't want to do that. I didn't know what that was, but as I learned in my 30s, it's a genetic thing. It's sprinkled all throughout my mom's family. Whether despite or perhaps because of his inner demons, by the end of his career, Young would be a two-time league most valuable player and Super Bowl champion. But there was another part of the Steve Young puzzle that had been missing. He had become a world-famous face of the Mormon church. Living as a devout Mormon is not easy. 60 Minutes wanted to talk to him when it profiled the church. Correspondent Mike Wallace zeroed in. Steve Young is still single. Steve, at 34, says that he's looking hard for a Mormon mate. Brigham Young once said, right here on these grounds, 
that anyone over 27 years of age that's not married is a menace to society. So here's my grandfather telling me, get with it. You don't think I feel the pressure? This is a Marian faith, my friend. You I know, know. I'm not telling you anything. I know. It's, it's crazy. Three years after that 60 Minutes interview, as Young's pro career was winding down, he met a model named Barbara Graham. He was such an anomaly from what I knew of other athletes. I had friends who dated athletes, and he's just so intelligent and so grounded and so spiritual, and we would talk for hours. A year later, they were married and now have four children. Today, Young is still a Mormon cover boy. The shortness of breath, the sleepless nights, the voices in his head, he says, long gone. It really is in the rearview mirror. My life is completely different in, in, in that part of anxiety. I just don't feel it. The anxiety may be a memory, but the spirit of the quarterback who wouldn't give up remains. He's all in. He is 100% all in in everything he does. I don't cry. <laughs> He's not going to take a knee. He's not going to slide. He's going to turn in, always. And he'll take on anything head on. <laughs> <laughs>